You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. We have been moving through this grand narrative and we find ourselves rounding third and coming home. But before we finish... We have this chapter before us, a a farewell of sorts. Do you join me as we read, follow along as we read this text? Genesis chapter 48, beginning in verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel, also Jacob, saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who's redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. 
But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Beloved, this is God's very word. You may be seated. In the mid-1600s, in India, there was an emperor by the name of Shah Jahan. And Emperor Shah endeavored to set out on a building project. And Emperor Shah, he was always a fan of architecture, but what really prompted his building project was the death of his very own wife, his queen. And so, to honor his deceased wife, Emperor Shah built her a mausoleum to be a monument, to be a memorial for her gravesite. And history tells us that the building project commenced in 1632 and that over 20,000 workers were involved in the construction of this mausoleum. Ten years later, when it's all said and done, the overall cost to build this mausoleum was roughly $900 million, if you translate that to modern currency. $900 million. If you don't already know, the, the structure I'm referring to is the Taj Mahal in India, and it still stands to this day as a monument of one of the most lavish gifts ever given. Here in our text this morning, in Genesis chapter 48, we also see a lavish, extravagant gift. And it's here at this point in this narrative, as Jacob now, as he is on his deathbed, he's turning to Joseph, and he is granting Joseph something even better than a building. He's passing down to Joseph and and to his descendants the promise that was given to him by his descendants from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and ultimately all of it coming from God. However, this is an extravagant gift that we see here, extravagant blessing that we see in chapter 48, but we not only see the blessing of God, but we also, in this text, we will see the unexpected nature in which this comes. We see blessing, we see favor, but we also see the surprising way in which God decides to grant favor and blessing. And so if you're a note taker, the structure of this sermon will flow in three segments. First, a gracious encounter, verses one through seven. Second, a gracious blessing, verses eight through 16. 
And third and last, unexpected grace. Verses 1 through 22, the entire chapter. A gracious encounter, a gracious blessing, and unexpected grace. And if there's one key word for this sermon, for this text, it is grace. The sermon is all about grace because this passage is all about grace because we serve a God who is himself gracious. And so as we open to chapter 48, we move right into point one, a gracious encounter. In the opening two verses of our text before us, Moses, our author, he sets the scene for the entire chapter. After this, verse one says, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. And so Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, he's sick, but he's not just taking a sick day. He's sick and he's on his deathbed. He's on his way out. And so we have seen through the past few chapters, God bring about restoration and reunion between Joseph and his brothers and reconciliation. We've seen reunion between Joseph and his father, Jacob. And now in this text, we see Jacob prepare for his departure, which is why actually in the, in the previous section, in chapter 47, verses 29 through 31, Jacob is already planning his burial with Joseph. And so therefore, we're witnessing now a dying man's last moments. This is a really tender scene that Jacob shares his final moments with his boy, Joseph. And we'll see here, this is a really pivotal moment in the patriarchal history, the passing of the baton, right, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and now to Joseph and his sons. But it's not merely transactional, right? This is a really intimate scene where Jacob is reflecting on his past. He's reflecting on God's faithfulness. He's reflecting on the highs, right, of him encountering God in Bethel in chapter 35. But he's also reflecting on the lows when he buried his wife, Rachel, Joseph's own mom. And so this is a really intimate scene. We're peering into, we get to open this text and peer into not just a transaction, but a really tender moment between a father and a son. And we'll see in next chapter, chapter 49, that Jacob is going to be addressing all of his sons. But here in this text, he just addresses Joseph and Joseph, Joseph's boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Jacob musters everything he's got just to prop himself up in bed to declare in verse three, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possessions. As we see in these gracious words from the patriarch, we see a man reflecting on the past as any man would who is on his deathbed, who's on his way out. Jacob has seen the faithfulness of God. He's seen the faithfulness of God firsthand. 
the God of his fathers encountered him in Genesis 35 and declared to him that promise, that covenant. This goes way back. This isn't just Jacob saying, here's a promise, but this has been handed to me by my father and by his father before him and his father before him and ultimately from God back in Genesis 12. But Jacob not only is recounting God's promises, he's also passing it along. Look at verse five. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So this here is just grace upon grace. Not only is Joseph receiving this blessing, this promise from his father, but he's also receiving it by means of his own children, by Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob is saying that the patriarchal blessing will not only go to the 12 sons, but also directly to his grandkids, to his two grandkids, Ephraim and Manasseh here in this text. At this moment, Jacob is adopting them into the inheritance that is his children's. And apparently, Jacob never went to elementary school and never learned the old quip, no cuts, no butts, no coconuts, because Jacob just cuts right over a generation and directly promises that this inheritance will be Ephraim and Manasseh's. And so Joseph, he's already seeing God's promise come to fruition. They're in the land of Goshen, and this promise that his seed would be, would be scattered and multiplied we see that in the land of Goshen already and Joseph is already seeing it with his own bloodline as God through Jacob, through the patriarch is blessing Joseph and his sons. Therefore, right off the bat, we see grace. This is a gracious encounter. And then Jacob, he shifts his blurry gaze toward Ephraim and Manasseh and he says this in verse eight. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me please that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And this is our second movement in the text, a gracious blessing. So once again, we see here a really tender moment between a grandfather and his grandchildren. Jacob is very clear. He's very clear on his intentions. He says, bring the boys here so that I may bless them. But once again, this isn't merely transactional. This is a family that was torn apart and now in this text we see there is reunion between Jacob and Joseph and that Jacob even gets to see his grandchildren. But did you notice something interesting, familiar in this text, in this passage? Did you notice something familiar? This encounter between Jacob and his grandchildren, it sounds a lot 
like Genesis 27, when Isaac handed down the blessing to his son, right? It sounds familiar. They both have dim eyes. They both are advanced in years. And yet, back in chapter 27, if you'll remember, Isaac blesses his son, but it's Jacob. It's Jacob who's the one who tricked his father and steals the blessing from the firstborn, Esau. In our passage this morning in verse 10, the text says that the boys are brought near so that Jacob can kiss them and embrace them. Back in chapter 27, Isaac did the same thing so that he could make sure that it was the firstborn, even though it didn't work because Jacob tricked him anyways. And you almost wonder in this text, you almost wonder if Jacob is trying to discern if he is being tricked because it takes one to know one, right? And yet, we know that both Jacob and Joseph have been changed over the years. We have seen transformation. As Kenneth A. Matthews writes, there is no trickery here. Both Joseph and Jacob have suffered the cruel consequences of deception. Therefore, this family encounter is filled with affection and grace. And so is the pronouncement of the blessing that Jacob is about to give to Joseph and to his sons. Draw your attention with me to verse 15 and 16 as Jacob pronounces this blessing. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of of the earth. This is that lavish blessing, that promise, that Abrahamic promise that has been passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, now to the boys, to Joseph's own too. That the descendants of Abraham would fill the earth and through, by means of Abraham's offspring, that the entire world, the earth, would be blessed, would receive redemption and salvation through the coming offspring. And Jacob makes it very clear that this blessing isn't inherently coming from himself, but ultimately from God. If Jacob wasn't God-centered in the past, he certainly is now as he's describing the source of this blessing. First, he says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. This goes all the way back, not just from Isaac, not just to Abraham, but from God. When God called Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans and gave him that promise. When God cut the covenant, remember? He cut the carcasses and and made an aisle way and walked through the carcasses in chapter 15, swearing by his own self that he would fulfill his promise to his people. This goes all the way back to God. Second, Jacob says that this blessing is from the God who has been my shepherd all my life long. And we have seen 
Jacob's sojourning. We have seen the Lord lay him down in green pastures. We've seen the Lord lead Jacob beside still waters. As a church, we have even seen God bring about his discipline by means of his correcting staff. And we've seen throughout all of Jacob's life the goodness and mercy of God follow him all of his days. Third, Jacob says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Right? What Jacob is referring to, which we've seen all throughout Genesis, is God in the heavens manifesting himself in physical form. Right? This is the angel that is the invisible God who's manifested himself. He's not just somewhere aloof in heaven, uninterested, but he's very much near. And he is the one who delivers. And as Jacob says to Pharaoh last week, few and evil have been my days. Here in this text, we see, yes, that's true, but the Lord is the one who has delivered him from all of it. Once again, this is a gracious blessing. But remember, we not only see grace in this passage, we, we not only see the gift of God, the promise of God, but we also see the unexpected nature in which it comes. We see the surprising nature of how God grants favor and blessing. And so this leads us to our third and last point, unexpected grace. You may have noticed that I skipped over a lot of text, right? Pretty much everything that precedes this blessing and everything that comes after but there's a really important feature that we see in this text that's important for us to understand what God is showing us and teaching us through this passage. So basically what happens is Joseph, he brings his boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, before Jacob, and the meeting starts to, to look a little formal, right? Joseph, he, he sets the scene and he puts... He puts his firstborn on his left, so Manasseh on his left and Ephraim on his right, in order that on the other side of things, Jacob, the patriarch, could put his right hand of blessing upon the firstborn and his left hand on the secondborn. And this was a common practice in the ancient Near East. This is called primogeniture. It's just a fancy way of saying the firstborn gets the prominent blessing and how that is conferred is by placing the right hand on the firstborn, and the left hand on the second. And so Joseph sets it up perfectly, and yet Jacob pulls a switcheroo. He does this, and he puts his right hand over the secondborn, Ephraim, and he puts his left hand over Manasseh, and he pronounces the blessing, right? Then after the blessing, Joseph, it's, the text says he's displeased. And he says, what is going on? Father, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And you almost wonder if Joseph is thinking maybe his eyes are really dim and he switched it up. But no, Father, you're supposed to put your right hand on the firstborn. That's not the way we're supposed to do it. And Joseph even takes Jacob's hand to force it over. And Jacob says, no, this isn't a mistake. 
I know what I'm doing. Manasseh will receive an inheritance, but Ephraim will receive a greater one. From Manasseh will come many people, but from Ephraim, the second board, will come a multitude of not only people, but nations. And so, the question is, why? Why does Jacob do this? It's actually really surprising because back in chapter 27, this same thing happens and it causes all sorts of chaos. Havoc is wreaked in the family as Jacob steals the firstborn blessing. Why would Jacob do this again, but on the other side of things? Jacob doesn't switch the birth order because he can't see And as we've already seen, he's not being tricky. He knows what he's doing and he's clear about it. Jacob can see with the eyes of faith better than he ever has before because he is a man who has learned that God's ways are not man's ways. Jacob has learned that lesson firsthand. It's not the strong and the firstborn Manasseh, but it's Ephraim who receives abundant grace. It's not Esau and Ishmael and Cain, but it's the Jacobs, it's the Isaacs, it's the Abels that the Lord looks upon. And so we see this unexpected grace in this blessing in which Jacob switches things around and breaks our categories. But we also see unexpected grace throughout the entire chapter. Back when Jacob in chapter 37, back when Jacob thinks that his son Joseph is dead, he says, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. And here, 10 chapters later, Jacob is joined with his son, but it's not in the grave. It's in the land of the living. And he's not even alone, but he's with his grandchildren, which is why in verse 11, Jacob says, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. This is unexpected grace. Joseph is not only alive with his two boys, but his two boys are half Egyptians from a pagan nation. They're the inheritors of this promise. This is so unorthodox. It's Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and now to these half Egyptian boys. This is unparalleled to what we have seen. Unexpected grace. Not only that, but when the two boys are adopted to receive the inheritance, remember no cuts, no butts, no coconuts, they not only cut into the inheritance, but they cut all the way to the front. All the way to the front of the 12, which is why Jacob says in verse five, he says that their birth order is likened to Reuben and Simeon, which actually are the firstborn and secondborn to Jacob. This is also confirmed in our chapter next week, in chapter 49, and also in 1 Chronicles 5, chapter one, As the chronicler writes, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, 
for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. Surprising, unexpected grace. And the list just goes on. The list goes on in this passage. These two boys, they receive the promise in this chapter before we even hear anything about the other 11 in chapter 49. In verse 20, there's actually a second blessing that the boys receive. And the second blessing is this, that their names will be invoked when the nation of Israel blesses other people in the future. That is to say that the nation of Israel after Ephraim and Manasseh will say to people, may you be prosperous like Ephraim and Manasseh. And last but not least, this chapter ends with Jacob just saying, oh, moreover, Joseph, I'm going to give you this plot of land which I'm not giving the other brothers. And this land, this mountain slope, is actually Shechem. This is so significant. This is the first place in which God encounters and comes down to Abraham to give that initial promise of blessing and redemption and salvation. And so this is unmerited, unexpected grace coming to an almost dead Joseph and his two half-pagan boys. Do you see this? Do you see the surprising nature of God's grace? And this is the point. This is the point that we see from this text that we are to expect as God's people, we are to expect God's grace in unexpected ways. We expect God's grace in unexpected ways. God's surprising grace rests upon the least likely candidates and it comes in unexpected ways. In the words of the show, the chosen, get used to different. And it's not hard, right, to see the shape of the gospel in a text like this. Chapter 49, rather chapter 48 of Genesis is very cross-shaped because we have a very unexpected Messiah bringing an unexpected salvation to an unexpected people. Jesus the Christ, the eternal Son of God, the one who dwelled in unapproachable light, in splendor and glory, enjoying perfect fellowship for all of eternity, he comes down, is robed with flesh, and he doesn't come to a palace. He's born in a stable with filthy animals. And this promised seed, this offspring from Abraham, He's not raised in the high and holy city of Jerusalem, but he's raised in Nazareth, this obscure city on the outskirts, which is why Nathaniel says in the Gospel of John, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Unexpected Messiah. And yes, the prophets, they foretold of a suffering servant who would come to bring about peace and rescue and salvation But who really would have guessed it? That the very power of God, the very might of God to usher in the kingdom of God would come by means of a Roman instrument of death, of torture. 
that God would conquer by his own death and by his subsequent resurrection. Surprising grace. Unexpected salvation. And who did Jesus come for? Who did Christ come for? Did he come for the mighty? Did he come for the powerful? Did he come for those of noble birth? No. He came to seek and to save the lost. Christ came for sinners. Those who inherit the earth, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, they are not the strong, but they are the weak. The blessing which we've been studying all throughout the book of Genesis, this promise, this blessing of salvation, of life, this culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the culmination of the blessing is forgiveness of sins at the cross, which is extended and offered to sinners. So inherently baked into the promise is the need for, for people to recognize that no, we are not strong. We are weak. Christ came for sinners. Christ did not come for those who don't need saving an unexpected people to receive this kind of inheritance, not by working your way up into the status and ranks, but by faith, by coming to Jesus by faith. Unexpected, unparalleled. So what do you do? What do you do with lavish grace and blessing like this? What do you do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? the supreme gift of God to sinners. What do you do with it? The application, we actually, we don't, we don't have to look too far from Genesis 48. Just look at what Ephraim and Manasseh are doing. They don't even have a speaking line. They're so passive. They are simply receiving this blessing from God, this promise from God. And so the application is for us the same thing, to receive Christ, to receive this promise of life, of salvation by faith. And this is, this is easy, right? Not necessarily. It is easy because it's a free gift of God's grace, right? There's nothing we have to do, yet there is so much resistance that we bring to the table against God and his grace. And we know that everyone, everyone is born into sin. Everyone is born as a rebel under God's wrath, resisting his grace. But even in the church roots, even us, as we have come to Christ by faith and as we have already received grace, we frequently time and time again, find ourselves resisting and pushing up against the grace of God. This isn't just a, a problem for them out there, but we tend to resist God and his grace all of the time. Like Joseph, those who've been rescued by grace, we often try to force Jacob's hand over the secondborn and say, no God, this is the way it should be. And yet, God's ways are higher than our ways. And his grace comes to us in unexpected ways. 
And so two ways, two main ways that we resist God and his grace. First, we act as if we don't need it. And second, we act as if we're unworthy to receive grace. We act as if we don't need grace and we act as if we're unworthy to continue to receive grace in our walk with the Lord. First, we act as if we don't need it. We act like we have it all together. We forget that we never had it all together in the first place. This reminds me of Paul's exhortation to the church in Galatia in chapter three. He says, you were doing so well. You started off in the spirit, trusting in Christ by faith, and now you're moving into the flesh. You've started off in the, in the spirit and now you would seek to be perfected by your own might and your own performance. And so we often try to fight sin on our own and temptation on our own. Like we have been delivered from the cross, yes, but now as I walk my life with Christ, it's actually me who is gonna buckle down in my own strength and in my own might to resist temptation. And inevitably what happens is we find ourselves in this cyclical pattern of being stuck over and over and over again in the muck and mire of what Christ has delivered us from. We have been placed under grace and yet it's so easy to just want to place ourselves back under the law. We think we can do it. And yet God is reminding us in this text that we start off with grace and as we sojourn all of our life, we don't graduate away from grace. Lord, I need you, I need you every hour, every moment, I need you. We act like we don't need it in our temptation. We act like we don't need God's grace in our suffering. We've all been there when we hear the words of Christ who says, my grace is sufficient for you, but it takes us a little time to get there because we think we can just hang on on our own and muscle through in our own strength. And we wouldn't explicitly say it, but we resist God's grace and we say, actually, I got it. I'm sufficient. And then God humbles us and brings us to the end of ourselves. And he graciously says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And even in those cycles of resisting him over and over again, even then he remains faithful and gracious to a people who oftentimes is so hard-headed. We are sheep, and yet he's our great shepherd. So we act, uh, we resist God because we act like we don't need it, and we resist God's grace when we believe we're too unworthy to continue to receive it. And my hunch is many of us here in the church, we live in this kind of space where we enjoy our salvation, redemption, forgiveness of sins at the very start. But then over time, we become more and more aware of our sin, which grieves us. And we think, surely God has put up with me. Surely he's fed up with me. How many times, how many times will he forgive me? 
But beloved, if God lavished his grace and his forgiveness on you while you were an enemy, won't he continue to do so now that you are a child, now that you are adopted? This is Paul's argument in Romans 5. Verse 10, Paul says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. God sent his one and only son to forgive us of all of our sins even when we didn't want it. Now that we do want it, won't he surely abundantly bless those who are found and hid in Christ. This is the blessing of God to us. We were talking in life group this past Thursday and I was reminded of um, my children. We were talking about their alarm clock. So they have this alarm clock that doesn't sound off this alarm at 7 a.m., but instead, and you guys, there's so many parents here, you know it, there's an alarm clock that turns green once it's time to wake up. And so the kids, they are so strict with it. Like, we cannot get out of bed unless that light turns green. There's even times I've, we've tried to, like, get them out of bed for donuts, and it's like, but the light's not green. And I'm like, we got donuts. But they come out of bed, and it's the funniest thing. I'll be downstairs, and I'll just hear them from upstairs jump out of the bed and just run to the door. And they open up the door, and they say, Mommy, Daddy, the light's green. And I say something to the effect of, I've been waiting for it to turn green. I can't wait. Come here. Right? And there's this warm embrace as if we haven't seen each other in months and it's only been hours. And I wonder if we as the church forget that the light is green. Like we think that it turns on and off on the basis of how we're feeling or our performance. But God says to us in the gospel, the light is always green. His countenance toward you is always that of a loving heavenly father who is not only okay with forgiving you, but eager, eager. When you run to him, he's running back all the more. The light is green. And this kind of love, we don't deserve it. And that's the point. That's grace. We don't deserve it. Grace, by definition, is undeserved. We didn't deserve it at the start. We don't deserve it as we sojourn. And there is coming a day when undeserving recipients of grace and mercy for all of eternity will be worshiping the only one who is deserving, the only one who is worthy. We will join the choir in heaven, the, 20, the, 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 the elders and the living creatures, and we will confess and praise our God and say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. If you are hearing my words this morning, whether you've heard this good news for the first time today or for the thousandth time, don't resist his voice. Hear this good news 
and receive it. That's what we do. We say, I don't deserve this, but Lord, I trust that your ways are higher than my ways. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of anything else but God, born of God. This is our blessing and inheritance in Christ. As I close, I want to read an excerpt from Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a 16th century reformer, a leader in the church, but before that, he wrestled with God. And he wrestled with this idea of grace and struggled hard against it until the Lord opened his vision to see that grace is truly grace, undeserved to sinners such as himself. Hear this quote from Luther. If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God, for faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith, that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly but looks on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. Church, may we see God for who he is. May we see him as loving. May we see him as gracious, as the one who lavishes the, the gift of the gospel upon us who are undeserving. May we see, church, that the light is always, always green. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. As Newton said, it is amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And we hear the sweetness of this grace as we taste the bitterness of our own sin and yet we see a God who has mercifully provided his own son. The only one who didn't deserve death and condemnation took it upon himself. God, this is surprising, unexpected joy and gift from you. And so God, would you teach our hearts in all of the various ways that we resist your grace. God, would you overcome our resistance? By your spirit, would you cause for us to receive Christ? Not with the intention to pay him back. Not because we've done well, God, but because you have deemed it right and just to provide for us yourself. So God, thank you, God. We rejoice in this gospel. Thank you for good news. Thank you for rich food that we get to feast on together. We pray in Christ's name, amen.